Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 161. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 32 through 35 and follow with some thoughts about hanging in there and getting it done. Psalm 32 begins, quote, a David maskil. It's clear that like Mizmor, a maskil is a type of psalm, but it's not clear from what follows what kind of psalm it is. Perhaps it's a witty one, as the word maskil also describes a person who is discerning or scholarly. But the poet is often witty, and what this psalm describes is a confession. The poet admits a sin, confesses to it, and God has forgiven him. Quote, happy of sin forgiven, absolved of offense, But note the passive voice here, the distance it puts between the poet and what he did. The rest of the psalm explores this moment. The weight of the sin lifted by confession, God's forgiveness providing relief. It's a simple lesson, really, but the takeaway line is a bit odd. Quote, Be not like a horse, like a mule, without sense. The bit and the reins, his adornment to keep him drawing near you. I guess the bit... And reins, which look like an ornament, are there for a reason to keep the dumb animal from running into people. But are we the horse and mule in this metaphor, or the ones misunderstanding the purpose of the bit and reins? Hmm. Psalm 33 is about audience participation. The poet invites us, the reader, us, to sing along with him. Quote, sing gladly, O righteous of the Lord, for the upright praise is befitting. Acclaim the Lord with the lyre, with the ten-stringed lute, him to him. And we should sing to God because God is in charge, and God has a plan, and God looks out for us, and God doesn't like wicked people. The psalm concludes with a hope that God's plan will come to fruition speedily in our day. Psalm 34 begins with a superscription that alludes to 1 Samuel 21, when David, surrounded by the Philistines, pretends to be mentally ill. The idiom here, altered his good sense, bishanoto et ta'amo, is also used in 1 Samuel, but a quick read of the original reveals a continuity error. The Philistine king in 1 Samuel is Achish, not Avimelech. These details aside, the poet describes a moment of sheer desperation where David is surrounded and circled, trapped by his enemies, and it seems that all is lost, and yet he escapes, and it's all thanks to God, and for that he gives thanks. Quote, Let me bless the Lord at all times, always his praise in my mouth. In the Lord I do glory. Let the lowly hear and rejoice. The first Hebrew word avarechecha, beginning with an aleph, starts an acrostic, and it rolls pretty smoothly, skipping the vav until the letter pe, much like it did in Psalm 25. And again, the takeaway is a simple one. Quote, the Lord's eyes are on the righteous and his ears to their outcry. The Lord's face is against evildoers to cut off from the earth their name. Psalm 35 begins with a request, quote, take my part, Lord, against my contestors. Notice the choice of word here, yirivim, which is related to the word riv, which often refers to a legal dispute. The poet is not asking for God to save him from enemies, but from adversaries in court, who, it seems, are abusing the legal system to get at him. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups, the police who investigate crime 
and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. But what of the military imagery that follows? They're just that imagery. As we're back in the courtroom in verse 11, quote, Outrageous witnesses rose. Of things I knew not, they asked me. They paid me back evil for good. Bereavement for my very self. But the poet is confident that God will vindicate him. Quote, You, Lord, have seen. Do not be mute. My master, do not keep far from me. Rouse yourself. Wake for my cause. My God and my master, for my quarrel, judge me by your justice. Lord, my God, and let them not rejoice over me. And on that galvanizing note, here endeth the lesson. I haven't seen them so much anymore. Perhaps irony killed it. Maybe the internet did memes or it's yet another casualty of millennials. But there was a time when you couldn't go anywhere without seeing an eagle or a rowing crew or a sharpened pencil or a mountain climber with an aspirational sentence underneath, usually in a tasteful serif font in white on a black background. The motivational poster, however, did not start in the offices of 1980s corporate America. They got their start seven decades before in factories. The print company Parker Holiday created a fictional character named Bill Jones, who seemed to be a fount of wisdom and encouragement for the workforce, always ready with a pithy maxim about punctuality, teamwork, and respect. Oh, and always a positive attitude. Here's but a brief sample of some of Bill's wisdom. A bare-chested man, tinted bright orange against a muted blue and back background, he's about to bring the hammer down onto an anvil, and Bill Jones says, quote, Action without thought is like driving a tack with a sledgehammer. Think before you act. Another one has a burning blimp, deflating and plummeting from the sky, while a British biplane marked Truth buzzes by. Bill tells us, The gas bag of rumor is easily downed by a bombardment of facts. Don't believe all you hear. Or, three soccer players on a pitch attacking a lone goalie. Bill admonishes, teamwork means goals. Combined effort seldom loses. Join in, help win, be in. Or, perhaps, this last one has a harried Bill himself with a hand truck piled high with stuff, but uh uh-oh, he can't get by because he's bumped into some messily thrown boxes. Bill's takeaway... Disorder slows down the game. I'm for a cleanup week every week. Are you, Bill? Are you really? It wouldn't surprise you to hear that the Great Depression not only killed the subscription service that brought these posters to the shop floor, but Parker Holiday too. And perhaps it may have even killed Bill Jones. During World War II, motivational posters became more straight-up, in-your-face political propaganda, especially those created by the military. One notable example is Rosie the Riveter, you know, the we-can-do-it in a, on a bold yellow background, which has been appropriated by various progressive social movements and memed to death. When the war ended, the motivational poster eventually returned to its pro-capitalist, pro-productivity origins with a quick pit stop in the 70s for the classic dangling cat with the cringy tagline, Hang in there, baby! <coughs> Mark Anderson launched Successories in 1985 and created the design formula we all know and despise. The solid border and background, most often black or dark gray, a photo of an eagle or a mountain or a pencil, whatever, and then a bold text headline with a single inspirational word or phrase. Psalm 34 
could generate a whole line of such posters with these pithy maxims alone. Quote, whoever the man desiring life who loves long days to see good, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Swerve from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Can you see it? The black border of the picture of a calm lake ringed by trees. Seek in like 300 point font, all caps with a tiny dot in between each letter. Well, I mean, I, I prefer not to imagine that, but whatever. And it's always so tempting to pull, you know, one quote from a whole chapter or a psalm or an interview or a tweet thread or a speech or whatever and make it the thing that not only represents the whole, but is the whole. And people do it. Keep your tongue from evil. Lashon hara, lamed hey, go to heck the easy way. You know, so many books of musr and ethics and self-help and 10-step plans and bumper stickers are often built upon one or two cherry-picked verses in this psalm or any other or any book of the Tanakh. But here's the thing. If you look at the whole psalm, you know, Psalm 34, you can see that pulling one quote from it is, well, problematic. Because of the superscription, quote, For David, when he altered his good sense before Avimelech, who banished him, and he went away. Am I suggesting that these pithy maxims were the byproduct of a con? That the poet produced these pearls of wisdom in a fit of put-on mania? That they are not the truth told by the jester, but part of the jest itself? Well, that's one reading. But I have a different reading, and it ties in to the last words or word of verse 1. He went away, Vayelech. That is, the things that he's thinking, that he shares with us, is, are the things he's thinking as he's calmly walking away from the caper, trying not to attract any attention. All of these you know, pithy maxims, this, this wisdom, all these words, all of these potential motivational posters, the poet didn't come up with them in his study, surrounded by scrolls, contemplating the great conundrums of life and the vagaries of existence over a cup of tea. Nope, the poet came to these conclusions about arrogance, discourtesy, abrasiveness, falsehood, combativeness, indignation, all expressions of power and authority, by the way, while barely escaping execution. He's back to being on the run, weak and vulnerable. And it's at this moment, of all moments, when he's on the brink of destruction, that instead of planning for the next step, for the next challenge, he decides to set a new agenda for himself, a revolutionary one. It's not enough to avoid evil. You have to also do good. It's not enough to seek peace. You have to pursue it. It's definitely a higher bar. It's definitely more than just Edmund Burke's, you know, old saw about the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Good men, according to the poet, are good because they do something. And this is especially pressing today, where the very prominent individuals let their tongues wag and spew evil and lies with abandon, and their base, that fervent 30%, they just lap it up as if it's the word come directly from God. And it's not about making an argument or staking a position. At this point, it's about basic facts and accuracy. For example, in June 1775, American Revolutionary Forces did not take over airports, nor did they prevail at Fort McHenry. That happened in 1814. I could list more, but partisans would probably tell me that my history books are, you know, they all have a liberal bias. So I'll just leave it at that. All of which is to say, 
that Psalm 34 has a definitive answer to this degradation of the discourse and our behavior. It's not a series of motivational posters strung together, nor is it an uplifting word salad. It's a call to moral uprightness and action, and a warning about impending disaster. It's a cry coming from deep within in response to the current moment, and it grows stronger with each chapter. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhcast. Tell a friend about Tanakhcast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Tanakhcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 162, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 36 through 39.